This is an ABC podcast. I'm Hilary Harper and this is Life Matters. Welcome to you. We're broadcasting from Wurundjeri country with a problem that affects people across the country. If there were leaks in your bank account, you'd be calling the authorities, wouldn't you, if money was just leaching away month by month without any benefit to you? But that is effectively what we're enduring. We pay about $100 a month each on streaming services, well-being apps, newspaper subscriptions, food or alcohol services. And if you try to unsubscribe, it's Byzantine. What can be done about the sneaky marketing tactics these subscription services are using on us? A recent survey found Australians are spending about $1,260 a year on average on subscriptions we don't use or have forgotten about. And that's a lot of money in this economic climate. And good luck if you want to cancel those rogue subs. Many services use very tricky design to make it almost impossible. Should there be more safeguards in place to stop these so-called dark patterns of online design? The ACCC certainly thinks so. Erin Turner's with us today. She's CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. Erin, hello. Hello. Great to have you in the studio. And Dr Louise Grimmer is a Senior Lecturer in Retail Marketing at the University of Tasmania. Louise, hello. Hello, Hilary and Erin. What a great combination of uh, perspectives and expertise on the show today because we're going to look in a moment uh, at the changes that are afoot or may be afoot or possibly should be afoot in how this is regulated. But Louise Grimmer, I'd like to start with the the big picture of how we got here. Why do we have so many subscriptions, collectively speaking? (laughs) That's a really good question, isn't it, Hilary? The, the subscription model, you know, so what, when we talk about subscriptions, it means a lot of different things, but it's really about paying a fee for uh, periodical access to a service or to a product. And if we think back a decade ago, um, we really saw subscriptions around things like, you know, we used to get our milk delivered. That was a subscription. Um, Newspapers and magazines and those sorts of things. But it's really exploded over, I guess, the last decade. It has a global value now of over, wait for it, US $275 billion and growing. And the reason that it's growing is that a lot of organisations are seeing that it's really powerful for them to try and lock in a continuing relationship with customers. What they're trying to do is maximise this what we call customer lifetime value over the longer term, and it's all about customer retention over customer acquisition. Well, it's interesting too because, I mean, you mentioned the ones that we'd be familiar with, the kind of media subscriptions that have grown to expand our online and digital subscriptions. But you've also written about how you can pay 20 bucks New Zealand a month to get a... (laughs) car steering wheel like I know that was uh, that is a, a really interesting example yes yeah, so so in that case um, subscriptions are used to unlock extra services and of course we see subscriptions doing that um, in the way that they're used across streaming platforms gaming platforms you pay a subscription every month or over the course of a year and it unlocks extra things for you so it gives you access to games that you wouldn't have if you didn't um, pay the subscription fees for example 
but we're really seeing it now being rolled out across almost any kind of product or service industry that you can think of. And there's a sort of tagline, I guess, in the in the industry, which is a trier becomes a buyer. Ah. So, you know, if organisations make it very easy for you, and I'm sure Erin's going to talk about this, but make it very easy for customers to sign up for things with things like, you know, a 30-day risk-free trial um, or giving you access to a product that you can't um, use unless you pay for a subscription, then you're going to try that product and they're going to hope that over time you're going to become a locked-in loyal customer over the longer term. Well, then you've written too about how some subscription models, say subscription boxes where you get a kind of mystery box every Mm. month, they really prey on the the, uh, physiological reactions that we have. They do. So a subscription box is where you, across almost any kind of product category now, is where you, you pay a monthly fee and, and a lovely box comes to your house every every month. And you don't, uh, it might be around, uh, it's around a theme. So let's say it's clothes, for example. You've given them all of your uh, measurements and, and things that you like to wear and, and probably quite a few personal details. And this box comes to you and you're not quite sure what's going to be in the box each month. So one, you've got that wonderful dopamine rush that you get the email saying your your box has been dispatched it's on its way to you you'll probably get another message saying it's coming today you'll get another message that say it's it's been delivered and then you open the box and you've got this wonderful uh, dopamine rush now sometimes you'll be happy with what's in the box sometimes you might not be so happy um, and so we but, but what that does is actually spur you on to keep that subscription going because um, and you've got that sort of um, I guess some of the physiological um, reactions that we see sometimes in gambling. Mm, um, yep. and, and, that, and that's really what um, subscriptions are using as well. The, the other thing that we're seeing with um, subscription boxes, and this was a, an example I saw on Instagram yesterday, is they're really trying to build a community around subscriptions. So I, I saw an ad on Instagram for a subscription box for female entrepreneurs. It comes every month. Now, that's great, but what they're really doing to lock people in is they're offering this online community. So it unlocks uh, your ability to connect with other female entrepreneurs online. You can attend events, resources, all of those sorts of things. And that's all designed to build that community and lock you in over the long term. So it's really quite sophisticated and in some ways, I guess, it's quite insidious as well. Yes. Well, we're getting a real insight into the, the way marketing works with subscription models with Dr. Louise Grimmer, Senior Lecturer in Retail Marketing at the University of Tasmania. And with us too is Erin Turner, CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. And we're just having a rush of texts into our inbox, Erin. It's, it's a bit disturbing. One says, I cancelled a card to escape subscriptions. Another, the worst perpetrators are dating sites. I've had to cancel four credit cards to stop them automatically debiting my card for thousands of dollars. Months of difficulty trying to cancel a gym membership despite completing the mandatory period. Uh, Yeah, lots of people having uh, difficulties in different areas with subscription models. Erin, what do you hear at the Consumer uh, Policy Research Centre? How big a problem is it for consumers? It's huge. So in our research, we found that 76% of Australians, so three out of four of us, have lost money um, because of a issue getting out of a subscription. And that can be both, you know, they've got trapped in a free trial, they've got stung with a fee they didn't want to pay at the end, they forgot about a subscription, or they've just had difficulty cancelling. And this is the big problem I have with a lot of business tactics here. 
some great businesses use subscriptions to give us value and give us things we want. The issue comes when businesses try to use design to trick or trap us and make it really difficult for us to say, actually, this isn't for me anymore. Well, you've isolated 10 kind of dark patterns, ways that they do try and trap us. Can you give us the top few that we might recognise? Yeah. So dark patterns are essentially manipulative website designs. It's when a business uses its knowledge about you, knowledge about human psychology and website design to get you to do what it wants instead of what's good for you. Um, well, the one we're talking about here, the, the subscription issue is also known as the Hotel California dark pattern. You can get in anytime you like. You can never leave. Uh, but there's others. Um, so, for example, nagging or redirecting. Um, confirm shaming is one you'll often see. So if you go to cancel, they might be like, oh, uh, to actually cancel, you have to click a button that says, yes, I want to give up all of the value you give me. So Basically, they, yes, I'm an idiot. Yeah, they want to introduce a lot of judgment into the process. Um, and then there's false hierarchy. So there might be a really big button flashing saying, yes, keep my membership. But you have to go right down the bottom, hidden in the tiny text to say, actually, no, I really want to cancel. So often businesses aren't just using one of these dark patterns. They're layering them. And they're making it much harder than it should be for us to get out. I was really interested to see that apparently young people are more vulnerable. I would have assumed they would be more digitally literate than older people. Look, it really worried us when we saw this in our research. So we found, for example, Australians between 18 and 28, they're 65% more likely than the rest of Australians to lose money or pay more because of a dark pattern. And I think there might be a range of reasons behind this, but one that concerns me is that Businesses and websites targeting young people are using more of these dark patterns. And you can really see it particularly on fashion websites, uh, more affordable fashion websites that often have flash sales. Um, They'll use things like uh, activity notifications. Someone in your area is shopping for this right now or let you know there's false scarcity. There's only three of these left when there may not actually be. Yep, yep, yep. Those are all very familiar from the uh, traditional (laughs) heritage models of shopping also. But yes, I can see why they'd be very powerful online. You you touched before, Erin, on why it's so hard to cancel some subscriptions. Can you give us a sense of what you might have to navigate through in particular subscriptions to get out of them? You know, there's a really good example I'll talk to because we've seen one big international company. It's been taken to task by regulators overseas for this, and they're still using their bad practices in Australia because we don't have the laws and protections here. Yeah, the dumping ground. Exactly. So Amazon, their unsubscription practices are notoriously bad. And there was a wave of consumer groups across the EU and the US. They complained about this. In 2022, the EU regulator, it forced Amazon to deal with its subscription practices. Now, if you you want to unsubscribe for Amazon Prime or any of those subscription services, it's a two-step process in the EU. In Australia, we've mapped this out. It's multi-stage. First, you've got to find it. You're going to get asked, oh, no, do you want to keep it? What about a discount? You're going to have to find the button. Layers and layers of dark patterns. They're using the old EU difficult to unsubscribe process, even though, you know, they found that this is unfair. We just don't have the laws to tackle this. I mean, what is an acceptable level of difficulty? Should you have to make a phone call? Should you have to have more than two clicks? I mean, you can see why businesses might want to make you a bit sticky. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I think there's elements of grey and then there's a point where it tips over into this is clearly unfair. Uh, So, for example, if a business makes you, lets you subscribe online, But to unsubscribe, you've got to call a phone number during particular hours. There's some businesses that are notorious for this. I think that's just not fair. It should be easy to get out as it is to get in. 
applying that principle, what Amazon's doing unfair, what a lot of media companies can be seen as doing is unfair. We just need to make it as simple to exit and enter. Louise Grimmer, you can see why there's an incentive for businesses not to change because they get our money, whether we like it or not. Is there an incentive for them to do better? Is there some kind of reputational advantage as being known as someone who's, you know, relatively easy to unsubscribe from? Yes, I think so. Um, I, I think that, um, look, I think conversations like this and the excellent report um, from the organisation that that Erin is the CEO of. Sorry, Erin, I've got it up here on my screen. It's great reading, scary reading, actually. Um, I think just having these conversations and being aware about this, uh, this issue for consumers and for organisations is going to help, hopefully, with making some improvements to what we see in Australia. Um, I, I totally agree with all of the points that Erin has made. And I think the powerful thing is that layering effect that Erin talked about, that it's not just one of these patterns that organisations are using. Often they're using a lot of uh, different tactics to try and get people to stay, to become sticky, and then, of course, making it really, really difficult. I think it's awful if an organisation allows you to sign up with one click, but then you actually have to make a phone call. I mean, most of us just don't do that sort of behaviour. So that's a real barrier for a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, I hope we're going to see some changes, but I think it's these sorts of conversations. It's about making people really aware of the kind of behaviour that they are engaging in as consumers. I just wrote down some of the um, subscriptions that we have chatting to my 12-year-old son. I was unaware of some of them. Ooh. <laughs> um, you know, gaming sort of subscriptions and those sorts of things, giving him access to, to you know, games and, and special tools and things online. There are lots of them, lots of streaming services we have that we don't use. Um, so I think it's really about creating this awareness for consumers. And there are some things that you can do yeah, that's interesting, the the level of consumer awareness versus how easy it is for us to implement the, the implications of that awareness. The text messages suggest that people are very aware of what's going on, but still struggling. Tim says, I totally agree with the subscription trapping point. I'm reasonably tech savvy. Trying to cancel my subscription to a sports streaming, streaming service, the cancellation page is buried. Don from Melbourne, I've learned to never sign up for trial subs. I've been caught out too many times. And Mark says, my best idea is to pay using a central payment service like PayPal. It's so easy to cancel this way. Can't process payments through services like this? Red flag for that site. Avoid it. Mm -hmm. And Erin, this one for you, there's an app that someone says you can use to find out about all the subscriptions that you've forgotten about. Uh, is that the case and does that actually require you to pay? <laughs> there are a few actually, there, but... It's typically a subscription service. So, the, oh. yeah, I know, the irony of paying for subscription <laughs> services for your subscription services, up to or the audience to decide whether there's value there. There's offline ways to do this. Uh, one of the challenges, though, is that some of these subscriptions, some of them are monthly or weekly, fortnightly. Some of them charge you once a year, and I think these are the really insidious ones. They're very easy to forget about, and they can hit you with, say, 60 or $100 or more. So if you're going through your bank account looking for what am I paying? You've got to go back at least 12 months, if not a little bit more, just to capture everything you're likely still subscribed to. Well, it's really hard in your bank account because sometimes I just don't recognise the company name. Exactly. It doesn't easily, like, oh, what is that random company? Is this a scam? Is it real? Was it the coffee shop down the road? Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, another way you can navigate it, it shouldn't be this hard. Um, if you've subscribed through your phone, um, Amazon, oh, sorry, oh, um, 
your Google phone or Apple, typically there's a way you can go through your settings and unsubscribe through there. That's a little bit easier. Yeah, when I was researching this program, I, we actually signed up for a free trial for one of those Learn Piano things. I was like, oh, this is a free trial for a week. And then it sticks to you for 210 bucks a year if you don't get to it in time. But it was so easy to unsubscribe. I thought, okay, that's that's the way to do it. So Erin, you, you mentioned before how these practices aren't illegal here. They're not seen as unfair trading practices. Why? So our consumer law just has a big gap. There's laws stopping companies from lying to you, our misleading and deceptive protections. Good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Companies shouldn't lie to us. And then we have this protection. It's it's very it's a really high bar, unconscionable conduct. Companies can't do something so outrageous that it's morally reprehensible. But there's nothing in between. This is, that's a big grey area, it, isn't it? It is. And most other countries, the EU, UK, Singapore, the US has had a protection against unfair trading for decades. They have laws that stop companies using their power against us. I think that's what Australia needs. So what form would that take? In the fine print, what would that look like? Ooh, so that we've actually done a whole report on this. Oh, we've, funny. You should ask, ah. Hillary. <laughs> like if, if anyone who really wants to nerd out, we've looked at the, the four uh, jurisdictions I just mentioned and looked at the specific form of words. But essentially what it needs to say is that a company shouldn't be taking advantage of their customers in a way where the company wins and the customer always loses. If, if they're doing that, that's an unfair business practice. Oh, I still find that a pretty interesting grey area, you know. How, how often can the customer lose before it's an acceptable practice? We're speaking with Erin Turner, who's the CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. And as you've been hearing, this subscription trapping, these dark patterns that snare us into giving money up month by month are a huge problem for consumers that Erin comes in contact with. And we've been hearing too from Dr Louise Grimmer, Senior Lecturer in Retail Marketing at the University of Tasmania, how easy it is to become ensnared and how hard it is to get out. Louise, do you have practical tips for uh, people to navigate this landscape, which is so ubiquitous? I mean, so many of the goods and services we use today come in a subscription model and for keeping track and getting out of these subscriptions when we need to. Yes, look, I think the first thing to do is one, be aware of your behaviour, but perhaps conduct an audit. So sit down and write down as many of the subscriptions that you have that you can think of. So think about streaming, if you pay for news online, any entertainment subscriptions, apps, as you said, uh, any products that come in the mail, services, online tools, etc. Um, make a list of all of them and then go through your credit card statement. And as Erin said, for some of these, you're going to have to go back um, a year. So sort of, I guess, Act as though you're doing your taxes and try and find as many of these subscriptions as you can. Um, and then, and this will probably identify some that you've missed as well. There is that problem, as you said, of the organisation sometimes having a very different name from, um, from the actual product that you're subscribing to. Um, if you add up what you're spending, you might sort of fall off your chair. Um, and this is where you need to think about, well, which, which ones are we actually using? We, here are some that I've completely forgotten about that we don't need any more, we need to go in and cancel these. The other, and obviously sometimes that's going to be um, quite problematic for people, but my, my two other tips are sort of, I would set up um, a special email address that you use specifically for subscriptions because then you can go back into those emails and, and track some of the subscriptions that you've signed up to because, you know, a lot of us have various different emails. We have work emails, we have personal emails. Some people do have um, emails set up for marketing messages and things like that, but maybe have one specifically for subscriptions. And then when you're signing up to a new subscription, 
try to think back to the way we used to behave when we first had credit cards, you know. You can't put your credit card in the freezer, but maybe think about, do I actually really need this subscription? Do I actually really need this now? If I were to not subscribe to it today and I slept on it overnight, see what happens the next day. Is it really, really that important? And is there an alternative? Is there a, a free tool that I can access online where I don't have to sign up? I don't have to give my email address, my personal details or my credit card. And I'd be very wary of some of these um, services where you are asked to give your credit card up front. Um, you know, a lot of them are just asking for your email address. And if you've got that email address set up that I suggested, then, you know, you can cancel the emails. But I would be a lot more um, critical of some of the organisations that are asking you to give your credit card immediately up front. But just really be aware of the insidious nature of the subscription economy in our lives and thinking about um, do I really need this new subscription and, of course, trying to clean up and cancel as many as you can if you're not using them. Yep, with that spare six hours you've got on a weekend sometime. (laughs) I would be lost without the calendar notifications on my phone. I stick everything in there, you know, annual, monthly, weekly, random things. That's a good tip. That's a great tip, Hillary. Oh, God, it saved my life. Um, And actually, a lot of cautionary tales coming through on text about giving up your credit card details too. I'll try and read some of them in a moment. But just quickly to finish up with Erin Turner, is is there a way that you can report this behaviour to make sure there's a, a kind of feedback loop? Look, the ACCC is looking at dark patterns. They've raised this issue. If you see something really insidious, I think let the regulator know. Um, also talk about it. Tell the company on social media. I think companies should feel more shame than they currently do for these really anti-consumer practices. Ultimately, I think what we need, though, is law reform. There's, we don't have the tool to stop this in Australia right now. And that's where we need to go. Yeah, it's a multi-stage process. Spreadsheets, public shaming of the companies, (laughs) law reform. Okay, I see where you're going. Look, it's been really fascinating speaking to you both today. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Erin Turner, CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre, and Dr Louise Grimmer is a Senior Lecturer in Retail Marketing at the University of Tasmania. And Andrea had a terrible experience. I subscribed to a free trial of Shutterstock. It was easy to do but required input of the credit card details. A few months went by. I realised it was billing me monthly and I hadn't used it since the first month. The site doesn't allow to unsubscribe with an easy button like the sign-up. I had to find time to call them, weather the hard sell to stay on, pay an $80 extra exit fee, I authorised a fee to get out of it, then another month or two with the messages that the exit fee payment failed and wanted me to call them again, again finding time to call them. Meantime, the monthly fee with the same card kept going through. In the end, I was in tears on the phone to them, trying to make them cancel it, says Andrea. And that's been echoed all through our text line. Huge issue. Get in touch with the ACCC if that's you. Up next, food can start to seem more about rules and caveats than about joy and conviviality sometimes. How do we reclaim that enjoyment of meals? We'll explore that in a moment. Hi, I'm Natasha Mitchell. Why do I love big ideas? Because they feed my curiosity, because they inspire me, they excite me, they challenge me, and because they can change the world, which is why I'm thrilled to be your new Big Ideas host in 2023. Your front row seat to the best live forums and festivals across Australia and the world, Monday to Thursday, 8pm on ABCRN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Change your world one big idea at a time. Food for thoughts. 
do you ever sit down to eat and not really see the food? It just looks like a bunch of kilojoules or a set of nutrients or a moment in a schedule or some kind of reward. Food can have all these different meanings for us, especially if our lives are very busy or mediated by other commitments. But really, it should be about joy and flavour and respite from all that other stuff, shouldn't it? Alistair Slavsky is an award-winning author, cook, food educator. Alice, can you help us get back in touch with food? I can join you on the journey. Excellent. (laughs) Well, and we did a series, you did a series for Life Matters, which we were so happy to share with our listeners called Tiny Tasters. And that, especially the episode, uh, more than just calories, really touched on this, didn't it? That idea that we should be experiencing and enjoying food for what it is. Exactly. And it was, uh, the series was designed around ages and stages. And that particular episode was geared towards adults. Because if there's one thing that happens to us when we're kind of in that liminal space between being a kid and being on the, uh, being on the older side where people are starting to talk to us about, um, you know, enjoyment more, adults kind of don't quite know what to think about food. And a lot of it is baggage. A lot of it is baggage from their own childhoods. And so the conversation was around what is it about food that goes beyond just, as you say, the nutrients and and macronutrients on the plate and more about the experience of eating. Yep. And you can search for that series uh, by searching ABC Tiny Tasters. There's a whole bunch of them, but the one more than just calories is particularly pertinent to us today. I mean, there, as you said, there's a lot of food rules that we inherit or, or kind of pick up from around us. Have there ways? Have you found ways to focus on the positives of food rather than seeing it as a negative? Oh yes, and it as all things in life, they're cyclical. So we're going through a real period at the moment where people are starting to talk more about a positive relationship with food and food neutrality, and that's off the back of decades of uh, quite restrictive, controlling ways of talking about food. If you think about the eighties, the Jane Fonda, the aerobics, the fat equals fat. Oh, fat for a yoghurt. Exactly. And if you think about what they're having to do in order to make that yoghurt palatable, they're replacing it with a bunch of things that are far less uh, easy for our body to process and understand than just that full fat cream or full fat milk. So that was the 80s. The 90s was the waif, heroin chic. And again, people were um, really kind of restricting what they were eating into the noughties, into the tens, into now. What we're seeing is the body positivity movement. We're seeing a lot more conversation around having neutral language, particularly with kids when it comes to food and what impact that can have for them. Because if there's one thing that we've recognised, it's that eating disorders and orthorexia, which is that kind of controlling thinking about food is absolutely rife. It's interesting though because you, when you mentioned the Tiny Tasters episode that you uh, worked with Dr Vyom Sharma about, uh, a lot of the things you discussed in there are going to raise red flags for people. Salt, fat, flavour in general. Microwaves. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was so reassured by that. <laughs> things like MSG and salt, how worried should we be about them? MSG, uh, over time, what we've found is that those. Th- there's been a study, particularly one that comes to mind, is the psychology behind what we expect MSG to do to our bodies. So a control group was uh, given the same meal as the other group. Both were given a meal without MSG, but the test group were told that they had a meal with MSG (laughs) and many of them reported having uh, symptoms of the expected kind of the hangover of eating MSG. So what that tells us is that it is psychosomatic more than it is something that is uh, a worry. Uh, Salt, of course, sodium is something to be concerned about, but you'll find more of that 
concerning sodium in ultra-processed food. Adding a sprinkle of salt flakes to your blanched green vegetables is not something to be worried about. In fact, if that makes it more delicious for you and more enjoyable for your family, go right ahead. Well, yes, that that was the the deliciousness and the flavour was something that came up a lot in your discussion uh, in Tiny Tasters because you talked about umami. Tell us about the link between umami and fats. Umami is that kind of savoury uh, satiety that you get from things like mushrooms, like aged meats, like uh, cheeses, aged cheeses. So it's actually something that our body needs in order to feel satisfied and Uh, Fat is a fantastic carrier, flavour carrier of umami. So fat and society is also, uh, satiety I should say is very linked. Fat and society too (laughs) is very linked. You know, for for so many years we've had a fat phobic society and what we're finding, particularly when I have conversations with people of a certain age who grew up thinking that margarine was the better choice than butter, it's the same conversation that we just had about low-fat yoghurt versus full-fat yoghurt. Eat the ingredient that your body knows what to do with. Yeah, and I love how you talk about kind of chucking in some cheese at the end of a meal just to give it that flavour hit and to make you really enjoy sitting down to eat it. Exactly. And what you'll find is that you actually need to eat less of it in order to feel satisfied. And what we know is that over time, portion size has gotten bigger. Plate size has gotten bigger at the table. So choose a smaller plate and load up your food with flavour and with ingredients that are full of that rich um, mono monosaturated fats, as well as the right kind of seasoning to make it satisfying for you. Well, yes, we should probably talk about sugar. I mean, because that adds flavour a lot and we we eat quite a lot of it in Australia. Uh, Can we enjoy that in moderation? We do eat uh, too much sugar, but it's not about cutting sugar out completely. So the kind of um, max that's recommended is it, it varies. It's between six to ten teaspoons a day, but obviously a lot of that sugar is found is hi- in hidden sugars and also in sugars that again our body doesn't quite know what to do with, like high fructose corn syrup. So. What I recommend, actually, again, if you're blanching green veggies, a tiny tea, like a little pinch of sugar actually tricks the mind into thinking that that is sweeter. When I cook with a tomato-based sauce, I'll always add a pinch of sugar, non a tip. It makes the, the sauce taste riper. So that kind of sugar is incidental and it's completely fine. And how we talk about sugar, particularly when it comes to talking to kids about sugar, will shape the way that they think about it. And we need to replace and remove that notion of guilt and shame not just for them, but also for us. Yep, yep. All through summer, I was making a tomato salad with basil, fresh basil from the garden. Salt, pepper, oil, and just a tiny sprinkle of sugar. It was unbelievably good. Mm. Uh, lots of texts coming in, Alice Slavsky, about ways that people have tried to get back in touch with that food as food, you know, the actual food and flavours on their plate and the experience of eating. Steve says, cooking from my garden regularly, I find, is enormously satisfying. And another one says, living alone, wanting to keep a sustainable Weight. I was tired of cooking. I bought a slow cooker and I love it. I'm enthusiastic about food again. I'd love to hear your thoughts too because we can feel so hedged around with these ideas and rules and caveats about what should and shouldn't be in our food and it can really hinder our enjoyment of meal times, which are about sharing and love and joy and fun. Annie from New South Wales says, while anyone in Australia is choosing between food and shelter, this talk about food is pretty shameful. So that's a perspective, isn't it? But I guess... Um, Uh, For a lot of people, the food you have, you want to make sure you can enjoy and savour to its utmost because you don't want to be thinking about the food you're missing out.
out on. You want to be loving the food that you have. Indeed. And there are some really terrific uh, food rescue charities that are thankfully there to support people who are um, either or who are um, home insecure. Yes. Well, and also the things we've been talking about apply really well to that kind of thing where you go, okay, we're tight on money this week. Let's look through the pantry, work out what we've got and how to make it the best it can be. Because we're not talking about fancy food here, are we? We're talking about adding a few grains of sugar to your tomato sauce. Exactly. And the reason why we talk about food on a monthly basis together, Hilary, is because we choose three times a day, um, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less. We choose what we put on our plates, we choose how we think about that food, and we choose what the conversation is around that table. So it is food to me is news, and food to me is extremely topical because it's something that we have to think about every day. Yes, indeed. And we're speaking with Alice Zaslavsky, who thinks about food every day. She's a cook, she's a food writer, she's an educator. The number of projects she's got going online is insane. You can check them out yourself. And the beautiful uh, pictures of food that she has on her social media. And actually, I noticed on social media that you caught up with the amazing Stephanie Alexander the other day. What kind of tips do you glean from those kind of food industry and and food stalwarts about how to uh, value food and meal times better? Stephanie is um, Australia's answer to Alice Waters. She founded the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation, which is bringing that love of growing and cooking and eating together to children around Australia. So you can imagine she and I had a lot to talk about because obviously my project Phenomenon helps to build on that and integrate food into every lesson across the curriculum. So when Stephanie and I catch up, we always catch up over food and it's simple. You know, to that texter's point before, Stephanie had some lemon verbena growing in the garden so she steeped it in some hot water and that's what we drank as our tea that was about a 15-20 minute conversation just about that and I think it's because there's so much memory and emotion tied up in food and that's actually part of this conversation that we're having today the reason why we're trying to move people away from guilt and shame is because for a long time the way that food was spoken about at the table was good, bad sometimes treat, naughty all of that language needs to be neutralised in order for us to get back to having a positive relationship with food and stop it from taking over our minds in a negative way. Well, and just as we finish up, Alice, let's talk about the way we eat too. Have you got thoughts about the way we sit down at the table to to really maximise our enjoyment of the food? Well, do as modern restaurants do and design meals to share. <laughs> so rather than serving things up on the plate and that, that they're um, deigning or deeming what people should be eating from that plate, put it all in the middle of the table and let people choose. If you have kids around that table, put safe foods there that you know they're going to eat and integrate new things to expose them to new tastes, but don't force them to try it. Let them come to the food through curiosity. That's a wonderful thing to bring to the table, curiosity as well as joy. Alice Soslavsky, always a joy to chat to you. Thank you. A pleasure is mine. You can find Alice's Tiny Tasters series online. You can search ABC Tiny Tasters. And this is Life Matters on ABC RN. And speaking of health and joy, would you spend more time in nature if your doctor told you to in writing? Some interesting new research on nature prescriptions up next. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Wherever you are, join us to commemorate Anzac Day across the ABC. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. With the dawn service and special events across the day. At the going down of the sun and in the morning. Anzac Day 2023 on ABC Radio, ABC RN and on the ABC Listen app. We will remember them.
You're listening to Life Matters on ABCRN. Imagine feeling a bit poorly, go to the doctor, they look you over, reach for the prescription pad and write, spend some time in nature. That's a prescription that you hopefully your employer would honour. It's already happening in the US, the UK, Canada, and there's increasing interest in it here. You're going to hear from two people now who research the benefits of getting outdoors. Professor Xiao Chi Feng has co-authored a study called Need and Interest in Nature Prescriptions to Protect Cardiovascular and Mental Health. She works at the University of New South Wales. Xiao Chi, welcome. Good morning, Hilary. Great to have you here. And Dr Anita Pryor is with us too. She's Director of AdventureWorks Australia. She's a practitioner and researcher in bush adventure therapy. Anita, hello. Hi there. Good morning. Uh, Xiao Chi, I'll start with you. What does the research tell us about spending time in nature? What does it do for us physically and mentally? Uh, we found that nature prescription can really increase in, uh, walking and uh, reduce depression and anxiety and also uh, lower blood pressure. Um, and we particularly find that this results was stronger um, if the nature prescriptions were issued or referred by a health professional, uh, which is usually for people with things like diabetes or depression. That's really interesting. So it had a bigger effect if the doctor told you to go and do it. I was wondering why people might not just go and spend some time in nature themselves. We all know it's good for us, don't we? Absolutely. You know, my research in the last uh, over 10 years shows that how green space and uh, could benefit our house from mental and physical health. But the reality is that I, I, I can see there are at least two major barriers for people. Uh, one is the accessibility. Uh, they may not have the nature environment for them to access. Um, for example, some of the mm, neighborhood may not have green space they can walk to. Um, but I think this part is improving in Australia, uh, especially during the pandemic. A lot of people, uh, many of us have the demands using outdoor space and being in nature and the government is investing in the green infrastructure. But the other part is also um, people may not feeling uh, naturally connected and they find not much interesting things to do in the nature. Um, because from my national survey in the last couple of years during the pandemic, um, one third of Australian uh, does not spend um, uh, even two hours a week in nature. Well, when, uh, when so, we talk about nature, yeah. Xiao Chi, what kinds of environments are we talking about? Does it need to be you know, right in the wilderness or can a little patch of green in the city work just as well? Absolutely. Um, the nature we're talking about, it could be parks, you know, a local pocket park in your neighborhood, but it could be a community garden. Um, but of, obviously it could be something a lot bit bigger, like blue mountains or lakes, uh, or beaches. Um, so it's a worse combination. Um, that's why I think we need to understand better how we can provide customized nature prescription um, to our uh, participants and patients and also uh, make the most of use uh, from the environment that they are already surrounded. Well, yes. Do they need to just be kind of plonked in that environment or do they need to be doing something in it? Do they need to be being active as well? Um, I think it just really depends. Uh, we all probably have this experience after a long day walk um, and feel exhausted and uh, maybe 
you know, quite tired and uh, uh, feel very low. And when we get into a park, we're just sitting down and close our eyes or looking the beautiful views, hear the bird sounds. And uh, probably after, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and we probably feel quite refreshed. I certainly have that experience. I didn't do much, um, but I restored uh, my mind. But on the other side, you might need to do something. So, uh, a lot of people going to the parks to jogging, physical activity, uh, walk around, or um, simply just um, be with friends doing some community garden. Uh, so it really depends that uh, what um, the patient or the participants they are looking for. Um, so it's not just a one answer. Yes, I noticed the RACGP are in favour of this idea of exploring nature prescriptions further and saying it could be anything from a directive to sit in a park today for a day and listen to the birds or, or go walking or gardening or swimming or more formal kind of outdoor exercise classes. We're speaking with Professor Xiao-Chi Feng, who's uh, been studying the effect of nature on mental health and physical health at the University of New South Wales. And Dr Anita Pryor, who works in adventure therapy, in particular bush adventure therapy in Australia. Anita, what is adventure therapy, just for people who aren't familiar with the concept? Yes, Hilary, in a nutshell, it um, engages people's bodies, minds, hearts and social relations in a nature context. So four key elements are generally combined in bush adventure therapy for a range of health and wellbeing outcomes from um, general health promotion aims the benefits of nature, the benefits of being with people, the benefits of care, right through to clinical treatment where bush adventure therapy and other outdoor health practices are used for specific diagnosed illnesses and specific diagnosed social behavioural um, difficulties. So I'm assuming this is this is up the opposite end of the spectrum from just sitting into a park, in a park and listening to birds. Are there particular uh, activities that fall under the umbrella of bush adventure mm. therapy? It sounds, it sounds challenging and active in, in words, and, and you're right, it can be that. It also can be very gentle, low-key, sitting, being together. And um, the Australian Association for Bush Adventure Therapy, which has been around for 15 years, is moving to be called Outdoor Health Australia. And we, are, we see our umbrella, including some 35 evidence-informed nature-based health practices from the gentle, passive and sitting outdoor counselling for example through to walk and talk therapy or walk and talk counselling through to the many outdoor adventure activities that are being used for therapy and healing all around Australia you know to mention Aboriginal cultural healing on country has been around for millennia and um, Aboriginal people have known and never forgotten the benefits and we learn and are informed by those practices as well as you know contemporary research and neuroscience, which is backing up the benefits of these activities in nature. Yes, yeah, as we've been hearing from Professor Xiao-Chi Feng just today as well on Life Matters. Anita, uh, you mentioned a different approach to counselling, having it outdoors or or while walking and talking. Is is there a gendered aspect to that? Does it work better for some genders than others? um, A meta-analysis by Daniel Bowen back in 2016 demonstrated that in adventure therapy, the um, all all ages and demographic and gender identities benefited, um, but 
women particularly 50 plus benefited the most so that's not to say that it doesn't benefit young people and young boys and men it does it certainly does and let's um, remember that it it benefits everyone and it can be engaging for all genders and identities where it has a special role to play with young men and adult men potentially in rural Australia where they're not accessing or not able to access the indoor counselling or the clinical options available in urban areas, outdoor adventure therapy and outdoor counselling or fishing and chatting could play a key role for those that either can't access mainstream health care options or don't want to and can't sit in four walls, of which there are many. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Anita Pryor, who's a, a researcher and practitioner in bush adventure therapy, and Professor Zhao Chi Feng, who's been researching the many benefits of being out in nature, whether you're just sitting and listening or being more active, for mental and physical health, and you know some might say emotional and spiritual health too. Zhao Chi Feng, you mentioned earlier some of the barriers that people might find to going out into nature, and and that being an argument for why you might need more of a formal prescription model for for primary health carers to recommend that people go and do this. But, I mean, a lot of those barriers would still exist, wouldn't they? Transport, money, work, other responsibilities. We can't all go bush regularly. Is this a, a kind of slightly elitist therapy? Um, Hila, very good questions. Um, there still have a lot of barriers for people to access. So, for example, a national park is great, um, but most of the national park is quite far. People probably need a car to get there rather than by public transport. And also there's a fee to pay. So I know like in Canada, uh, they have tens, over 10,000 GPs signed um up for issue nature prescription where organization called PACS. But they also was able to negotiate with their National Park Foundation to get free National Park Pass uh, for their patients and participants. Um, so we actually in Australia are um, going to run one of the quite large trial shortly uh, called PANDA, physical activity in nature for people with cardiometabolic diseases aged 45 and over, which is co-led by myself and also with Professor Thomas Estabert at the University of Wollongong. So this is where we really would like to learn more where our trial study, what are the barriers and how we can uh, overcome it, uh, which we would like to co-design the nature prescription with our participants, uh, the consumers, and also health professionals, and also nature practitioners. Um, so I hope that if anyone who is listening to this uh, program and uh, you are a potential participant or uh, a health professional uh, or nature practitioners, please get in contact with us. Uh, and you can contact me by my email or our website, uh, powerlab.site. Powerlab.site, is that it? Yeah, P O W E R. L-A-B dot I-S-I-T-E. Um, there is a short EOI form if your participant interested to join the nature prescription, uh, you can fill. Wow, if you're interested in that trial, powerlab.site, powerlab.site to sign up for Professor Xiaoqi Cheng's research there. Uh, Anita Pryor, that question of expense applies to adventure therapy too, doesn't it? I understand mm. that you're, you're trying to find ways to make it more accessible. Tell us about that. 
Yes, um, great to hear about Shaochi's study too, fantastic. Um, so accessible, one of the things that a group of uh, our volunteers are doing is um, launching a National Outdoor Health Australia service directory in early May, which uh, provides information about local outdoor health providers near you. So that's an access. Um, we're, we're trying to help increase access in that way. And that's everything from um, Parks Victoria, which has health and wellbeing walks identified in parks for self-guided wellbeing walks through to um, uh, facilitated therapeutic experiences, facilitated integrative counselling and therapy experiences and up to treatment and clinical approaches and so finding an outdoor health provider near you is one way we hope to increase access another is um, lots of outdoor health providers already uh, can access ndis funding for ndis registered clients so that's one avenue where people can gain funding and financial support to engage in these approaches if they need that and um a team at University of Tasmania are working on a trial which we hope will compare indoor counselling with outdoor counselling and indoor passive group work to outdoor active group work for uh, mental health outcomes. And we're hoping to take that sort of trial and build evidence as Xiaoqi Feng is doing to um, show that with a couple of randomised control trials in the right direction, we would hope that the RACGP and other key bodies would uh, include outdoor health as a as a non-drug non, um, treatment intervention. So uh, be included, ultimately, this is our horizon line, I guess, uh, included in the Medicare benefits scheme uh, based on research evidence and outcomes. Yeah, there's some amazing texts coming in. This is from Angela in Wiradjuri country. She says, I was a volunteer in a psychology experiment at the ANU in the late 1990s where students who liked walking would make themselves available at a set time each week to walk with a specific student who was suffering from chronic depression. She says, my role was a passive one, just turn up at their residence once a week and offer them the opportunity to walk out in the natural world. I was so amazed at the positive results for the students with chronic depression that I instituted the same system for my teenage daughter when she became deeply depressed in her late teens. That's from Angela. I guess, I mean, if we're looking at offering nature therapy and uh, guided activities in nature that are, have this specific aim of increasing mental health and physical well-being, we'd want to know that people were adequately trained, wouldn't we? Dr Anita Pryor, what mm. sort of training is needed to deliver these kinds of programs to make sure they're safe for participants? Yes, great question. Well, one um, bar, if you like, for clinical therapeutic work would be like headspace clinicians. You have a, a level of counselling or therapy training that is usually three to four years in length and supervised hours of clinical practice. So that's for when we're calling our work counselling or therapy with a big T. That's the, the minimum baseline. But we tend to work with cross-disciplinary teams and we really value um, people with youth work backgrounds, community development, Aboriginal cultural knowledge holders, of course, and um, a range of other training pathways into the field, including outdoor adventure guides in Tasmania who can make, make wonderful um, therapeutic safe uh, practitioners for this kind of work in these places. So we are really into broad um, disciplines, but a 
certainly a level of clinical care and supervision. For yeah, that oversight. Uh, yeah. Professor Xiaoqi Feng, do you think that we need to make sure this industry is well regulated? Um, I think this is why uh, the nature prescription currently is uh, usually issued by a health professional uh, or social worker um, because they know their patients very well. Obviously, you know, a person, if they already um, exposure to nature allows and no problem. Um, just like if we're eating healthily, we may not going to find advice um, or a, a professional advice from a dietitian. However, there will be people, um, they may have, for example, mobility issue. Uh, they may have a heart disease. So uh, maybe a running uh, in the forest is not for them. So there will be other ways that they could benefit from nature. So this is why I think uh, the nature prescription uh, should be issued uh, by a health professional, social worker, or a trained uh, professional. So make sure uh, that we do this safely and correctly. Yes, indeed. And Dr. Anita Pryor, you told my producer that ironically you don't get out in nature much anymore, too busy with indoor work, but you're, you're out there today, aren't you? What's it like? Yes, yeah, literally with the Tasmania East Coast, it's gorgeous, sun shining, birds tweeting, waves crashing. Oh, um, lovely. Lucky, yeah. We'll take that with us, I think, throughout our days. <laughs> Anita Xiaoqi, thank you both so much for joining us on Life Matters today. Mm-hmm. Great, thanks, Hillary. Thank you, thanks, Hillary. Enjoy your day. You too. Professor Xiao Chi Feng researches nature prescriptions in the School of Population Health at the University of New South Wales. That website she mentioned before, if you want to be part of her clinical trial, powerlab.site, and Dr. Anita Pryor, Director of Adventure Works Australia. Lots of texts coming in on all our stories today. Landcare groups are everywhere, says one. This experience ticks all the boxes and helps with climate change distress. Mutual healing. On enjoying food more as as food, Judy in Castlemaine just says, herbs, 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 herbs. <laughs> and so many texts on subscriptions and trying to get out of the maze of them. Why can't we just stop any unwanted subscription payments directly through our respective banks, says Stephen in Tasmania with much frustrated punctuation. Andy in Cairns says, the moment I sign up, I go to cancel while everything's fresh in my mind. This is an absolute must for annual subscriptions. You can guarantee they'll remind you your sub is set to expire well before the year is up. Thanks, Andy. And Tony says, I tend to cancel a new subscription as soon as I sign up too. That way, renewal is up to me, not the provider. Uh, Another says, try cancelling a Telstra broadband plan. I found it impossible till I contacted the third party service that originally set up all our house utilities. That's from Alan. I'm sorry to hear you've been having such troubles, but I'm glad we covered this story today. Lovely to have your company for today's conversations. We cover a lot of territory, don't we, on Life Matters? On our next episode, the Reno Session. Lots of demand for renovation, a tight labour market and high costs. That's been a bad combo for many businesses and homeowners. As hundreds of builders go bust, many building dreams are turning into nightmares. Can you still make your grand design fantasy a reality? Or will we need to tone down our dreams a little? Looking forward to that discussion on Life Matters. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.